These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people, peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, transitions are, uh, they can be difficult, right? Children, for example, they leave a loving home and they go off to college. It's not uncommon for them in the first few months to struggle with homesickness and and it can be a rough transition when they go from a loving home into a strange environment for the first time. Or, you know, we have that phrase, a honeymoon, during their honeymoon period. And that's kind of ironic, right? Because in those first two, three years, you are adjusting living with someone else. And the transition at times can get a little uh, fiery, right? Or painful as you learn to live with that person that you said, I do to, right? And then, of course, we saw... And even in our nation, how transitions, when uh, authorities change from one person or party to another, how difficult that can be. And we had a good example of that this last January. Well, what we have in our text this morning is we have an important transition. Since the last message on Palm Sunday when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac and that whole thing in, in Genesis chapter 22, a lot has happened, right? Uh, Sarah has died. And uh, uh, Jacob, or excuse me, um, Isaac, at the age of 40, gets a wife, and her name is Rebekah. And then most importantly, Abraham has now died. And so uh, Isaac is the head of the family, and there are, this passage is really giving us some important events that have happened, and it's an important transition, because the rest of the book, you know, while Isaac is mentioned, and, and there's a few things that happen, the rest of the book really revolves around Jacob. 
And he's in the whole, in fact, he's in the majority of the book of Genesis concerning Jacob. Jacob, whose name ultimately is going to be changed by God to Israel because he will be the father of the nation that bears that same name. And so this passage is this transitional passage that begins to give us insight into the character, the strengths and the weaknesses of this very important patriarch, Jacob. Now, one of the things that we know about transitions, right, is that they can be really, really messy. Sometimes they are pleasant, but oftentimes they can be chaotic, they can be uh, painful. And, and it's for this reason that most of us do not like transitions and change because we've been through transitions that were less than ideal. And they brought pain and anxiety and other things into our life. And that's what this transition does. This transition, it kind of foreshadows the chaos and the pain that will be in Jacob's life because there's a lot of it in this transition. So, in this transitional passage. <clears throat> so, for those of you who are taking notes this morning, we're gonna study this passage by breaking it down into really two separate uh, sections because this passage is really two different phases. You know, there's the birth at the beginning and then there's a quiet period of many years and then the last part of this passage. And so two basic phases in this transition and <clears throat> message, excuse me, <clears throat> has uh, two points to go along with those phases. First, in verses 19 to 23, we see the inscrutable nature of God's sovereign grace. And secondly, we're going to pull out of the conflict between Esau and, uh, and Jacob the gospel implications within that sibling rivalry. The passage opens up with some familiar words, words that we have read throughout the book of Genesis so far. These are the generations of... But this time there's a difference, right? We would expect these are the generations of Isaac and then the listing of his kids and his, you know, his, his posterity. But instead what you see in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Here's this reiteration of something that's obvious to everybody by this point. So why is this the case? It's because God wants the Israelites, and by extension, all of us who are reading this passage, to remember the history of Abraham and how God led him to Canaan and how he provided for him and he guided him and protected and prospered him. And most importantly, he made an eternal divine covenant of which Isaac is an important player. Abraham fathered Isaac. It's through Isaac not Ishmael or the sons of Keturah, another concubine, which you can read earlier in, in chapter uh, 25. It's through Isaac that the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, which we've seen throughout this passage and throughout this uh, ministry year, it's through Isaac, not the others, that the seed of the woman will come. Now, Isaac was not the promised seed. It's through him that the seed will come. And right then we have tension because after he marries Rebecca for 20 years, they try to have a child and there's no conception. There's barrenness. And so like Abraham and Sarah before them, they're facing the pain, the frustration, the anxiety of, of not having an heir. And, and therefore the family line dying out and more importantly, the son of promise never coming. But unlike Abraham and Sarah, who responded to that 
you know, crisis with faithlessness and you had the whole Hagar mess, right? Uh, they, they learned from that. To their credit, Jacob and Rebekah don't repeat that mistake. They don't scheme and take matters into their own hands and create their own Hagar mess. Instead, verse 21, we read, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, one of the things you know, some of the preceding chapters and the subsequent chapters are going to make very clear to us is that Isaac was a quiet, contemplative type of guy. He was very different than Abraham, who was a, you know, outgoing, expanding, and he was more of a consolidator guy. He stayed in one general area, and what you see in the scriptures is that it's mentioned that he would go out into the fields and he would just meditate for alone time and talk and pray to God. And so I, I imagine, I think it's a good you know, assumption on our part, that verse 21 is not the first time that Isaac has been praying for Rebekah to conceive. For 20 years, they have struggled. And I imagine there were many times that he prayed and he asked God for them to be able to have children, that it was a regular practice. But for some reason, only known to God, it's now, after 20 years of barrenness, that he says, yes. You know, but this, this really shouldn't really shock us at this point, right? I mean, look at the Abraham and Sarah's journey, right? It was more than 20 years, and, and they were way past the age of childbearing. And, and so God steps in, and he gives them this miracle baby. And here's Isaac. He's 60 years of age. Rebecca's at, at the very least, at the very end of that time when she would a woman could get pregnant, and, and now he steps in and intervenes, and they, they are pregnant. And if you read in, in Genesis, this continues, right? The same thing happens for Jacob with Leah and Rachel. God steps in with his wives, and he helps them at the critical time. The scriptures are filled with examples like this, where God, God's people are praying, they're waiting patiently, there's anxiety, there's tension, they wonder how is this all going to be resolved, and then God acts at a time that only he decides. And, and we don't know why it is like this, that God acts like this, but we do know this, God acts when he wants to act and how he wants to act, and each time he acts in this way, it is absolutely perfect and it is absolutely right. That's what we can conclude. You know, the prophet Isaiah, he was struggling with this. He, he looked at what God was doing with Israel and he's praying and pouring out his heart to God and he sees all the horrible things that are coming their way by the way of judgment and nations that are attacking and, and all the devastation of war. And he lifts his voice to God and he's essentially saying, why, why is this happening? And, and God's response to Isaiah and to really to all of us is pretty short. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It's short, but it's clear, right? We may not like it, but here's what he says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. To our wonderment of why and when and all of that, God says, look, you have no clue as to what I'm actually doing. And so this creates a crisis of faith. For us. Church, many times in our lives, living by faith in God means trusting in Him even when we don't understand why He's working the way He does. To walk by faith and to trust Him is to believe that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He promises to do for reasons 
that he may or may not reveal to us. He may just call upon us to trust him and we will never know why until we get the glory. If you're struggling with trusting God this morning, ask yourself, what is it about God that I doubt? Am I doubting what God has said about himself and how he has revealed himself to me? Am I doubting the character of God or am I doubting the promises of God? Which one are you doubting if you're struggling with walking by faith? Well, in this narrative, the clearest example of the inscrutable nature of God's sovereign grace is in verses 22 and 23. The children struggled together within Rebekah, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Rebekah's pregnancy is extremely painful. And she's actually afraid for her life. She's concerned that she may die during the pregnancy and definitely there's a chance that I may die during the childbirth, which was common in that day, right? And, and the reason why is because the, the Bible says the children were struggling within her. In other words, they were literally, the word means they were smashing and crashing and mashing against one another. They were fighting in the womb, right? And it was so painful to Rebecca, she's afraid for her life. And so she goes to the Lord and she prays. And in that prayer, God reveals the most amazing thing to her. And he reminds us all of his sovereign power. He tells her, the reason why this is happening is that you have two boys in your womb. You're gonna have twin boys. And guess what? They're both going to be the heads of great nations and on top of that, the second one is going to be the leader. The first will serve the second. And, and this is different, right? I remember a couple of weeks ago, um, I mentioned to you the law of primogenitor in the ancient world, the law of primogenitor. The law of primogenitor said that the firstborn son, by natural right, got first place in the family. So in Abraham's time, what that meant often was that the firstborn son got everything. He got all the money, he got all the land, he got all the family business, he got the family's honor, he got the family's responsibilities, all of that came upon him. Uh, so you, you actually see this with Abraham, right? Uh, he sent Ishmael away, the, the sons of Keturah. He has a bunch of sons through another wife, Keturah, and he gives them you know, gifts, but he sends them away. They do not get the estate. They just got a gift. By the time of, of Moses, uh, you know, the, the primogenitor had changed. Two-thirds would go to their firstborn. One-third could be split upon the others. And so God tells uh, Rebekah, hey, listen, I'm about to upset the natural order of things. The first will not be first. The first will be second, and the second will be first. And once again, God is showing and demonstrating his sovereignty over everything with this decree like he did with Adam and Noah and Abraham and like he will do with Jacob, God steps in, upsets the natural order, and the son that you think will be the one through the, that the seed of the promise will come through is not the son God chooses. So it's not going to be Isaac's firstborn 
son who the seed comes through. It'll be the second born. And the question is, why? Why does God do this? Why does God, you know, upset the natural order of things that works perfectly fine the majority of time? Why does he do this? The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 actually points back to this episode, and he shows it to be um, an illustration of why God acts the way he does. Why God, you know, carries out his sovereign grace in the way that he happens to do so. So in Romans chapter 9, we read these words. The, this son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of scripture, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Church, with this intervention, it's Esau and Jacob, God is once again giving us a vivid illustration of a biblical truth and a theme that runs throughout the pages of Scripture from beginning to end and throughout history itself. And so I want to give it to you this morning by way of a takeaway truth. Why don't you read it aloud with me? Ready? Here we go. Salvation is based always and only on the will and mercies of God. One more time in case you didn't absorb it all, okay? Ready? Here we go. Salvation is based always and only on the will and the mercies of God. As Paul goes on to show in Romans chapter 9, right? God shows mercy to those whom he will show mercy. He loves those whom he wants to love. And through those of us who have received God's mercy and love, God glorifies himself through this inscrutable manifestation of his sovereign grace. Because the reality is that it's a grace that none of us have a right to. Not one of us do. And the remaining verses in this passage, they show this. They show the rivalry actually illustrates the importance of that takeaway truth. So let's turn to it. Let's go to the gospel implications of this ancient civil uh, sibling rivalry. It's a story that probably many of you know, but some of you may not. So let me summarize it for you this morning, right? Rebecca, she gives birth to these twins. And from the outset, this rivalry is in place, right? Esau, he's the firstborn. He's born first. He is hairy. Bible makes a point of talking about how hairy he is, right? And he has reddish hue to his skin, and maybe he's even a redhead. And, and as he leaves the birth canal, right, Jacob reaches out and grabs his heel, like he's trying to, you know, pull him back in so he can get out first. So right from the beginning, you're talking about foreshadowing, right? For those of you like, I mean, this is foreshadowing. If it was a movie, the ominous music would be playing right now. And it's clear from the beginning that Jacob is a fighter who wants to supplant his older brother in the natural place of honor. As one author puts it, for all of those of us who like Westerns, how many of you, you know, watch or like, kind of like Westerns? Raise your hand, right? Okay, yeah. so the real Christians have their hands up this morning, right? Um, <laughs> for those of us who love Westerns and are used to them, right, raised on them, Jacob, he appears to be the villain. 
who wants to fight and take something that doesn't belong to him. I mean, the description of Jacob here is that he's a quiet guy, a schemer who stays around the tents. He's kind of a mama's boy, right? And then you have Esau. Esau fits the bill for the hero who's gonna rescue the maiden in distress, right? He's this guy, he's dad's favorite. He's tanned and he's hairy and he's rugged and he's a hunter who can provide for the clan and protect the family, right? Esau was the man's man. He's the one that we would naturally think is the good guy and Jacob is the bad guy, the villain, but we would be wrong. That's not it at all. In fact, we're clued into this through the description of Esau. This description of Esau as a baby isn't because they didn't have you know, pictures and they couldn't show it to him. There's actually intentionality here. In the ancient world, the description that is given to Esau is communicating a lot, right? And, and it's meant to tell us that there's something not right about this guy. His hairiness and the red hue of his skin and all that, those were not compliments. They were meant to communicate that he was an animalistic kind of guy. He was uncivilized, he was uncouth and brutish. He's not worthy to be the firstborn heir of God, the one through whom God is gonna bring the promised seed. And you know it right from the beginning because of how he looks as a baby. In the ancient world, that was descriptive of his character. He would live this out. And by the way, he would live this out. To the ancient Israelites, they learned this the hard way. You know, Esau becomes the father of a nation, Edom. And Edom, from the outset, is Israel's enemy. When they tried to leave Egypt on the Exodus, the shortest distance, the easiest way for them to get to the promised land would be through Edom. And Edom said, absolutely not. They went to war with Israel, refusing to let them come and take the, the main highway from Egypt to Israel, which would have been a matter of months instead of what they had to do instead. And then later, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and he attacks the southern kingdom, the Edom, the Edomites, they ally with Nebuchadnezzar and they are there with him. When he attacks Jerusalem, they participate in tearing down the walls and then they stand and they sing and they cheer and they celebrate the destruction of Israel. So Esau is not a good guy. He comes home from hunting, he's hungry, he's so out of control, he's so brutish that he despises his birthright and the privileges of being the firstborn son. He despises it so much that he gives away this precious birthright for a bowl of red stew. What does that say about him? He, he's ruled by his appetites. He's ruled by his passions. He has no care for the honor of being the firstborn son at all, right? It's through these actions that he proves he's not a good guy and he's not worthy of the birthright. He's not worthy to be the one through whom the seed will come. He's not a good guy at all. And neither is Jacob. <laughs> neither is Jacob. I mean, the story here is really setting us up and saying, look, if you really read between the lines, Jacob has been waiting for his moment. <laughs> He's been scheming, looking for his chance to get what he wants. You know, the name Jacob is not a compliment in the Hebrew language. I remember when our son Jacob was born, my sister Pam, who's here with me this morning, when we told him her his name, she goes, oh no, I hope he doesn't end up being a deceiver like his name. <laughs> 
I told Jacob that this week and he didn't think it was funny. So anyway, <laughs> right. <laughs> now think about it. When Esau is weak, right? When he's at his weak, Jacob pounces. Right? He's been planning this thing. At best, Jacob knew about the prophetic utterance that God had given to Rebekah. He knew that he was supposed to receive the birthright. And so at best, he's done what Abraham and Sarah did and took matters in his own hands and created his own plan like they did with Hagar. Now he's done the same thing so that he can get the birthright that he believes God's going to give him anyway. He's just, you know, helping God along. You know, God helps those who help themselves, right? Okay, that's what he's doing. That's at best. But listen, I, I don't think that's it at all. I think it, we're, he's more on the worst end of the spectrum. I think the more likely scenario is that he's just ripping off his brother, man. He's just taking off advantage of his brother in a weak moment. He wants something that by human standards doesn't belong to him. And he's putting a plan in place to get what he wants. And so this understanding of Jacob really helps us and leads us to the first gospel application from this passage, that God loves and he extends grace to the least likely of people, right? Jacob is not a man of faith like Abraham. Now, Abraham would have lapses here and there, but overall, the trajectory of Abraham's life was admirable, right? I mean, you look at him and you go, wow, I'd like to be somewhat like Abraham. What a, what a phenomenal follower of God. Um, but he's not like this at all. He's not a spiritual giant for many, many, many decades. In fact, Jacob's life is a hard life. It's a painful life. It's filled with conflict and strife and contention. He does not have an easy road. There's a lot about Jacob that is not uh, admirable. He's deceptive. He's an accomplished schemer, right? You got to watch this quiet ones, right? That's what they tell you. And he's the quiet one. And he's this accomplished schemer. And this is going to be a description of him for years and years to come. He carries out like this is who he is. In other words, he's definitely a God-sized restoration project, <laughs> like many of us are. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. A couple of chapters later, many years from the selling of the bowl of stew, Isaac is an old man. He's nearing death. He's blind, and he knows that he's about to die, so he goes to Esau. Apparently, for Isaac, either he didn't know what God had told Rebekah or he didn't care because he was going to give the birthright and the blessing to Esau. Esau was his favorite. And so he told Esau, go and get me, uh, you know, kill, a, kill a, an animal and get me a venison stew, the way you make it, I like it like that, and come in and I'm gonna give you the blessing and transfer the birthright to you. Jacob finds out about this. Jacob and Rachel find out about this. And so while he's gone hunting, Jacob, you know, they take, you know, animal pelts and they cover his arms with it and they put it on his face so that his smooth skin would be hairy. And then he fixes the meal and he goes into the tent and he impersonates Esau. You know how twins often talk alike. Maybe their voices were not enough. And so Isaac, to verify that it was, uh, that it was Esau, reaches over and he, he brushes his arms and his face because he's looking for the hair. And sure enough, there it is. It's Esau, right? And so he gives the blessing and the birthright to Jacob thinking that it was Esau. Now think about that for a minute. 
he schemes and puts into motion a plan that takes advantage of his old, dying, blind, physically handicapped father. Right? He is not a good guy. He is a larger-than-life example of our takeaway truth that salvation is based always and only on the will and mercies of God. And this is great news for all of us because gone are all the conditions that humanity puts upon divine blessing from a human's perspective. From a human perspective, God blesses people because they have the right skin color or they come from the right people group or they are a, a citizen of the right nation. The world's religions teach us that God blesses people because of their good works. In other words, we live a good life and this obligates God to bless us. We go to church, we say our prayers, we give our offerings, we, we participate in the different activities of the church that we're a part of, and this essentially earns us God's grace. We eat it in in the sacraments in some places that teach that, or we get our baptisms, or whatever it may be, and this obligates God to bless us. This was the case for the Jews in Romans 9, right? The passage that we read, they believed God owed them blessings and a good life because they obeyed the law of Moses. They were religious and they were Jews, not Gentiles. They had their act together and God owes this to them. But God in his divine grace does not work like this. And Esau and Jacob are examples in his divine grace, before time even began, he decided he would love Jacob and reject Esau. Now, this is great news for Jacob, right? He's getting something that he did not deserve. What he deserved was what Esau got, God's justice. And instead, he got God's grace. And the point is, neither are we more worthy of God's grace than the vilest, most violent person who's walking the streets of Palm Bay and Melbourne. And when we understand that, it brings about two things. The first thing it does is it encourages everyone to throw themselves on the mercy of the Lord. When you, you, whoever you are this morning, God does not want you to fix yourself up and to come to him dressed in your best. God wants you to come just as you are because he sees who we really are. He sees the depth of our sin. He understands that at our best, we deserve hell. And so the good news of this is for all of us here, as Jesus tells us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. And the good news of this is that any one of us who wants to come to God can come just the way we are, and he will not reject us. He will give us mercy and grace. Anyone who ever comes to God looking for his mercy and grace finds it. And the second thing it does is it encourages all of us who've experienced this to worship him and serve him from a deep posture of gratitude and appreciation. The more we grow in our appreciation of what God's grace has done in our lives, the better we understand and appreciate the lyrics of that old hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, 
and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned and unclean. I know as uplifting as this aspect of the story is and the application is, the final aspect is actually a little more sobering. But I think it's one that all Christians or those who claim to be Christians need to hear, those of us inside this church and those outside this church. Second application, final application this morning, the reckless and the feckless treatment of one's spiritual birthright is symptomatic of a much more dangerous spiritual reality. You know, from a human perspective, Esau had all the advantages a covenant child could have, right? He, He was raised by godly parents. He knew the one true God. He was raised in a family that had financial security. It had social standing. There was safety and prestige in his family. He was the natural firstborn son with all that came with it, who had a good life and a bright future. But the verdict on his life, it's alarming, isn't it? The final words of this passage, he despised his birthright. And so the question is, what does that say to us? So what, right? What does it say to us? Well, the author of Hebrews, he actually, I think this is the only example in the New Testament, I'm here, but I think this is the only example in the New Testament where Esau is brought over into the New Testament. It's to the author of Hebrews who does it. He's dealing with people who claim to be Christians. And at best, these Christians are lukewarm and that they are rejecting important aspects of the Christian life and of the gospel, and they're, they're you know, being tempted and being swayed by the world or by other religions. And that, that's at best. At worst, they are cultural Christians. You know, maybe they were born into the church in some way, and they, they, they know all about Christianity in their head, but it's not a heart reality. This is the danger for every one of us who are second and third and fourth generation Christians. We know all about the gospel, but is it the reality of our heart? And so the book of Hebrews is written to these people because they were either just you know, lukewarm and not, not where they should be, or they were actually turning their back. They were done with God. Something that we see happening more and more in our society today. You know, we, we saw it this week in a statistic that came out, and once somebody shared it with me this morning even, that for the first time in almost 100 years, less than 50% of the people of our nation are associated with a church of some kind. We are becoming more and more a pagan society that is done with God and with Christ. And so we need to hear this this morning. The author of Hebrews is talking, and through a series of warnings, he tells these professing Christians that they need to wake up. They were despising their spiritual birthright. They were living for themselves and treating their involvement with the local body of Christ and the, the kingdom of God in a, in a haphazard, reckless, cavalier manner. They were on a course to end up like Esau, who after it was too late, He realized the importance of that birthright and he went into his dad and he cried and he wept and he said, can't you give me the birthright? And Isaac said, I can't. I have nothing for you. You wasted it. You treated it recklessly and in an unworthy manner. And so the author of Hebrews, 
he looks at these people that he's so concerned about, and, and this is what he says. He says, you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Now hear this, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Do you understand what the point he's making here? Esau and the Old Testament Israelites had less revelation than we do, yet God held them accountable for the reckless and unworthy, feckless way that they treated their spiritual birthright. We are not like that. We are on the other side of the cross. We have more revelation than they ever had. Our spiritual birthright is far superior to their spiritual birthright. We understand that Jesus has now come. We know who the Messiah, promised Messiah actually is and that he died and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended on the third day. We have the entirety of God's word given to us in multiple forms and translations and mediums. We are a participant in a spiritual birthright that is so much stronger because we now live under the new covenant. So what do you think? Do you think God's expectations are less Or are they more? With this greater spiritual birthright comes this expectation that we will treat it honorably, that we will curate it well, that we will take advantage of the greater blessings that we have. So, so let me make this in closing very pointed, very clear. I don't want anyone not getting what I'm driving at here. We have the Word of God in our hands, right? Multiple ways, so many different ways. What an incredible spiritual birthright. So do you read it? Do you study it daily? Do you delight in its words? Or are you dismissive? You touch it every now and then. Do you treat it fecklessly or do you treat it with honor? Right? We, we can gather corporately and we can worship together in comfort and in freedom and in safety, unlike so many of our brothers and sisters around this world. Does your involvement in your church and in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God at large, does it honor your birthright or does it despise it? How about our calendar, our bank account? Does our calendar and bank account indicate that we cherish and steward our spiritual birthright or are we treating it recklessly, fecklessly, despising the gifts that God has given us? We need to look and see. Like those Hebrew Christians, am I a cultural Christian? Is, does the pattern of my life simply reveal I've never been born again, that I'm a cultural Christian? Or does it reveal that I'm a lukewarm Christian? How are you treating this precious spiritual birthright that you've been given? Church, the world 
is continually offering us bowls of red stew (laughs) to encourage us to neglect our blood-bought, precious birthright and substitute it with cheap, hollow trinkets of this world that will ultimately not satisfy us. That's where we live. So may this week, when we're tempted to treat our spiritual birthright recklessly, may we keep our eyes on Jesus and draw strength from Him, the one who resisted those temptations of the world, the one who purchased this spiritual birthright for us with His shed blood on Calvary's cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage. May you add your blessing to it. For the one who maybe has been struggling in their life and they want deliverance and restoration, Lord, and they've not yet turned to you, may even today they take by faith that promise that you will not reject all, anyone who comes to you with repentance and faith. Lord, plant within them that great desire to turn from sin and to embrace Jesus. Help them to see the beauty and the grace of the good news that we do not have to rebuild ourselves and restore ourselves. We can come to you simply as we are with all of our sin and all of our failures and our wounds and the totality of our being, and we can lay it at the cross, and you will redeem every bit of it. Give them that conviction in their heart. And Lord, those of us who know you, May we not be lukewarm and treat this birthright recklessly. Give us that zeal that can only come through your spirit. Help us to steward it well and respond and treat it with honor. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.